This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Pascal Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is... Why doesn't the ABA's history officially count? We are brought to you today by The Replay with L and Al. Have you ever wondered how your favorite NBA players spend their time off the court? If so, The Replay with L and Al is a perfect podcast for you. They discuss everything from endorsement deals and power couples to fashion choices and social media. Listen in every week, and we promise you'll be hipper than Joel Embiid's pregame dance routines. Check out the replay on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or check it out at The Step Back. Hey, this is Jason. Uh, Today my guest is Adam Cribley, basketball historian who's been on the uh, show uh, before it's got a book on the 70s coming out soon and uh, just want to mention there are a few instances where his uh, voice is slightly distorted usually at the very beginning of when he speaks it only happens a handful of times it might be a little bit annoying but you should be able to hear basically everything he says just wanted to uh, mention that for those who are sensitive to Jews. so enjoy the show so we are talking about the ABA, NBA merger, expansion, absorption, whatever term you want to use. That is what we are talking about. And uh, in, in, a lot of interesting aspects to it. But one interesting aspect as historians, I think, is how the ABA's history is treated. And it is not really integrated with the NBA's history. Usually in the official NBA records, Julius Irving, for instance, his NBA stats are counted, but his ABA stats are usually not included with his totals. Obviously, you can go to Basketball Reference and get those and and, and compare him in the history of the official lexicon. But um, as far as the NBA's official records goes, not really treated. Certainly not with you know equal amount of um, reverence, if if nothing else. That extends beyond Julius Irving. You guys. Uh mentioned i think you were talking to curtis about ron boone the other uh, couple podcasts ago and and uh that his even consecutive game streak so it, it 
it, I think it's interesting. It, it goes beyond just points scored and Dr. J. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, it goes really for anybody involved in the league. But I mean, obviously, if you just put, if you just stack up um, Irving's NBA accomplishments, which are great, you know, Artis Gilmore, somebody like that, um, and don't include their ABA accomplishments, you, you, don't, you don't get the full picture, or you know, much less guys yeah, who, who just played in the ABA, you know, things like that. But. So, you know, kind of leading into what's going on in the ABA's final season, it's it's chaos. There are teams folding, schedule constantly having to be reworked, particularly early in the season. Um, there are six somewhat sound teams, the Nuggets, the Nets, the Spurs, the Pacers, uh, the Kentucky Colonels, and the Spirits of St. Louis. Uh, however, Baltimore folds before even having played a game, having had moved from Memphis. Uh, San Diego folds, Utah folds, uh, both early in the season. Virginia hanging on somewhat by a thread. They do manage to survive the whole season as um, uh, Carl Shearer, the uh, the Denver uh, Nuggets executive, said it was a death march in many respects. We really had nothing. Um, so, obviously, the ABA not coming in at a position of strength at the end of that season, really in a in a very weak position, um, not likely to be able to survive into the future and really having to take whatever terms the NBA is willing to give them. I think that actually you can trace it back about a year before then. Uh, in, in 1975, two of the ABA teams, two of the, probably the strongest teams, the, the Denver Nuggets and New York Nets, led by uh, David Thompson and Julius Irving, uh, tried to negotiate a deal to jump just themselves to the NBA. So I think the NBA saw that even the... The, the, the rats were jumping ship. The, the best teams in the ABA wanted to be in the NBA. And so I think that was kind of the final straw, the, maybe the, the last position of strength the ABA had was they had Dr. J, they had David Thompson, they had Artis Gilmore. Uh, but when several of these ABA teams were willing to, to sell out or to jump leagues, I think that, that the ABA, you know, even, even the most ardent ABA supporters had to realize that the end was near. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, and the NBA was certainly not in a giving mood anyway. There had been a contentious battle, a nine-year battle between the NBA and ABA over free agents, over underclassmen, you know, many lawsuits, many major legal fees. Um, and, you know, the entire mission statement of the ABA was to form a league and force a merger, just like the AFL had with the NFL. And the fact that the ABA had survived nine years um, – it was really, you know, went way beyond anybody's expectations. Of course, they also thought a merger was going to become much sooner than that, and it, and it almost did. We'll, we'll talk about kind of the evolution of that, but uh, but the, the point being is that you know there were all these battles over players. There was all these accusations over spying, leaks from disgruntled employees. You know, for the most part, the NBA guys didn't like the ABA guys, and the ABA guys didn't really like the NBA guys very much, but were you know willing to wanted to get into the club and were you know basically willing to accept almost whatever they could get. Yeah, I love this quote from uh, the Knicks owner Mike Burke. That you know, you mentioned that not only was the ABA ready to merge, but the NBA was done in two. And he said, uh, "quote It was time to take off our land because we were out of runway." So I, th- I think that's a great, uh, great metaphor. Yes, yeah. There's there's another um, you know interesting one as well from Irv Kosloff of the 76ers who said, you know, this is in into 75. Um, there must there must be only one league by whatever method it takes to get it done. So it was at that point, you know, it was the last year of the ABA. They were struggling and, you know, weren't sure if it was going to be a merger or if they, the league was just going to fail and the NBA would absorb its players. But at that point, you know, obviously they had been um, 
you know, battered by, you know, years of just all this, all these headaches of dealing with the competition and wanting to have a, you know, at least on the management side, they were just wanting to have a United League. The players, you know, still, I think, were pretty happy with having two leagues. Obviously, it was it was very beneficial for them, um, especially in the early years as, as salaries rise and as the, you know, the leagues are bidding over guys. But, you know, even by you know, probably by 74, 75, as teams are, you know, folding or, or, you know, there's a a constant tension there. Um, and, and, you know, the leagues are struggling in some respects, probably, you know, even uh, some of the players, at least, you know, were, were all in favor of a merger as long as, you know, their, their rights were represented. That was a constant issue with the, with the ABA, uh, and NBA was that, that competition between the, the owners, but the players were generally interested in keeping, uh, keeping two leagues because it gave them more options. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is the the precedent from the original merger, the the NBL and the BAA merging in 1949 to form the original NBA. Um, and the, the way that was viewed and the way that sort of informs the ABA merger, I think, is interesting because there's definitely a difference of opinion in the sort of the newspaper accounts um, – of the time and of the years later, whether this was two leagues forming one league or whether it was more of a stronger league, the BAA absorbing the weaker one and just changing the name, but it essentially being the BAA. Um, you know, the press accounts of the time are somewhat split. And, you know, the NBA, the newly formed NBA did keep most of the BAA structure and most of the franchises from the NBL eventually washed out. However, only three of the eight franchises that survived this period of the early 50s, all this turmoil, actually began in the BAA. The other five started the, in the NBL. So, you know, when it comes to the history of the original eight teams, you know, the NBL had was the was the source of more than the, than the BAA. But over the years, the BAA has become the, you know, official um, precedent league for the NBA. And the NBL records in history have been marginalized, even the Lakers NBL title in 1948, um, a league which included, by the way, the Hawks, the Kings, the Sixers, and the Pistons, teams that, you know, the franchises that would become those teams, uh, you know, that, that's not counted for the Lakers um, toward their number of, you know, overall championships. And obviously, if you added that one, that, you know, that comes closer to the Celtics record of a championship. So, uh, you know, it, th- those things are somewhat meaningful, even though obviously it's a, you know, a leak from the 40s, you know, who, most fans, even fans who are pretty into basketball history, listening to this kind of thing, eh, you know, what does that matter? But, you know, it does change some perceptions and change some records and, and, um, and obviously, if you think of the BAA as the origin league versus thinking of, you know, the BAA kind of took the best NBL teams and eventually those two, those two leagues merged, that's a different, you know, founding view of how the, um, of, of you know, how the original origin of the NBA was founded. And that obviously um, informs the, you know, the, the way that you think of how the ABA and the NBA came together as well, even though those were obviously different circumstances. Well, I think there's a lot of comparisons, actually. Um, one of my one of my favorite basketball historians is a, a man by, uh, by the name of uh, Dr. Murray Nelson, who wrote a, a, several books about, he wrote one about the American Basketball League, uh, but his book about the National Basketball League is really fascinating. And uh, I had the opportunity to talk to him uh, at a conference a few years ago, and he drew these comparisons between the ABA and the NBL very explicitly. Uh, he said, you know, the 
the uh, the the strongest NBA teams were former NBL teams. Um, in some ways, you know, the ABA none of the ABA original four uh, won a title in the first uh, several years until and the Spurs must have been the first. But the uh, um, you know the Nuggets and Spurs uh, were were two of the best teams in the in the late 70s and early 80s. And then you had in the uh, in the uh, NBL the former NBL Minneapolis Lakers Rochester Royals and Syracuse Nationals who end up of course being the Lakers Kings and Sixers today um, they won the first six NBA titles and then if you look at the all NBA uh, teams the first couple seasons they're littered with NBL players and uh, the comparisons again with the ABA are just are tremendous and the one of the reasons the NBL washed out is they didn't have they were located in smaller cities they didn't have the uh, um, a lot of media presence, and you know, similarly, the ABA, even those in big cities, couldn't get on TV, couldn't get the publicity, and so there's. I think that you, you make a great point that there are comparisons between the merger in 1949 and that in 1976. The, the way that those legacies were treated as well. I mean, and you know, as far as a national, you know, presence, the NBL was nothing, the BAA was nothing, you know, really until the 60s, uh, late 50s, maybe early 60s, where there was any sort of major league. Um, sense with what the NBA was. So there wasn't much of a history tradition to really think about and preserve at the time where, you know, by the 70s, the the, the NBA is more established and there's um, considerations of preserving history, considerations of um, the tradition, and, and those things matter much more in the situation in 76 than they would have in 49 with, you know, the, both leagues being, you know, relatively new and, and very few people, you know, caring about those sorts of things Um in the original merger but um so looking at the the, sort of the evolution of the merger um you know the the first really serious talks for Torah merger happened in 1970 the league began in 67 the aba uh, filed an antitrust suit against the nba uh in 68 related to nba collusion in the draft some some documents were leaked to the aba from a disgruntled nba employee and they basically had a uh, you know a list of a approving sort of uh, NBA, NBA colluding with its teams to, um, to to draft players and to get them to kind of the, the spots that they wanted to, which was you know illegal under the system, and it was it was meant to you know prevent as much ABA interference as they could because one thing the ABA had managed to do was draft some some key players already. Um, so so that is you know is kind of a that that. The pressure from that gets the NBA to the negotiating table, and the NBA voters actually vote 13 to 4 to negotiate toward a merger in 1970. Sam Schulman, who's sort of a renegade owner for the uh, Seattle Supersonics, re- of course, a recent addition to the NBA, went so far as to threaten to jump to the ABA and move the Sonics to Los Angeles if the NBA didn't accept agreement. Um, and there, there was a you know a tentative vote that a tentative plan that would have admitted all ten of the eleven ABA teams, all but the Virginia Squires, who were considered too close to the um, to the Baltimore Bullets team. But um, the, the the major thing that really um, uh, throttled or kept that from happening was the Oscar Robertson antitrust lawsuit, which was filed in 1970. Um, and the Players Association basically wanting to wanting to get rid of the reserve clause that tied a team to the a tied a player to the team that drafted him, and, and and really you know was a huge restraint of player rights. Yeah, the uh, and and Oscar Robertson really is in many ways the perfect leader for that uh, Players Association at the time. He's a he's a strong personality. He had obviously experienced the you know race, racism and segregation. Um, uh, 
tracing to to his high school days in, in Indianapolis. And then he comes in and he's he's an established star. Uh, he he's got a lot of gravitas and um, yeah, he's he's the the head of that of that players association. But it really takes um, a, a a great deal of uh, unification or unified effort from the players to to make sure that 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 has teeth. And so the uh, um, those NBA players filing the suit, like you said, effectively keeps the merger from taking place until the reserve clause issue is settled. And so it's really like you said, the reserve clause issue rather than um, the merger that, that is the sticking point um, uh, for, for the next six years. Yeah. And so the NBA, instead of deciding to um, absorb the ABA or do a merge with the ABA, they decide an expansion of four teams um, in uh, 1970 for, for the 71 season. Oh, actually, it ended up only being three uh, made it in because the Houston franchise that was going to be approved initially, um, it, they didn't have the money. So, uh, And then in 72, there is a, a merger bill approved by a Senate committee, but it didn't really... Uh, satisfy anyone uh they they determined the reserve clause couldn't be part of the merger and and a senate subcommittee changed the terms uh, even though it, it, it passed the lawmakers test the the owners were not happy about it and the, and the players really weren't all that happy about it either so that didn't happen there was another attempt in 73 where the legislation was like there's a si vault article um from a 72 kind of going through some of these issues Larry Fleischer, who was the representative for the players union and a, and a powerful agent of the time, you know, really the, probably the most powerful uh, player advocate, non-player player advocate of that time. Um, uh, basically said that, you know, he, they, they were okay. They would compromise and be okay with the merger if the owners would agree to get rid of the option clause, only actually have the option clause on rookie contracts and also uh, not allowing the idea of compensation where the you know commissioner uh, it would be enacted later but but compensation is basically a team loses a free agent then the the, the team that gets the free agent has to um compensate them with you know basically an equivalent player so it'd be basically forcing a trade so obviously not true for agency um most of the old line owners oppose this, but there are some signs that the younger ones could be on board. So there's some movement there, but obviously it's 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 a long ways away. Yeah, and no, this is really a, a transition time in in pro basketball. That that era, right around seventy two, seventy three, uh, because the NBA, like you said, has an established league. There's tradition. There's the powerful Celtics teams, but between Oh, you know, 1969 and 1973, 74, you have all of a sudden the retirements of, a, you know, a, a, a catalog of great players. The, uh, you know, Bill Russell retires in 69. And then you've got um, a few seasons later, Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, uh, you know, the Willis Reed, um, Jerry Lucas, uh, Dave DeBusher, this this whole cadre leaves. And now all of a sudden and, and that, you know, some of those are as late as 74. But you've got this period of transition where the NBA had these established stars that we typically link to the '60s, uh, and they but they've got the television contract, but their you know their their powerhouse teams are no longer powerhouses, and then the ABA who's got this young exciting talent that no one can watch on TV, and so this, I mean this is a to me it's a it's a pivotal moment of uh, of change in pro basketball, and it just so happens of course that at the time there's arguments about these two leagues merging or or 
you know, whatever the case is. And then, of course, Senate, the Senate's involved, uh, the Robertson suit's taking place. So it's a fascinating, like, three- or four-year window right there. Yeah, and there's also a lot of the old-line owners are going away and moving on to, a, you know, a new brasher class of owners, you know, usually richer, usually having money and other things than uh, basketball. Um, Ned Irish of the Knicks is, is leaving around this time in the mid-'70s. Um, the uh, the Zollner of the uh, of the Pistons is gone by the by, I think by the late sixties early seventies um, and, and some of the Jack Kent Cook is is you know he he came in in the mid sixties but he's another example of these you know kind of these brash um, big money owners and also expansion brings a lot of owners to the club and the ABA you know all all those guys are kind of crazy for the most part so you you have a different you know, there are different concerns now there are and, and TV you know it can't be said enough how much television really um, you know started to really mean to the league I mean it, it was obviously the kind of the goal in the uh, in the mid 60s to get a stable television contract that that finally happens with ABC then they moved to CBS which is even more prestigious station although the, the treatment there isn't necessarily as good uh, but there's there's changes all sorts of kinds you know beyond the the players you're talking about but there is definitely a a new guard coming in both the ownership ranks and in the um and in the player ranks as you're talking about um and 73 um mike storen who was had had been a uh, pacers general manager and kentucky colonel general manager becomes the aba commissioner and after sort of a few years of you know maybe a a cold war more of a stalemate between the leagues claims that the aba is going to get aggressive again uh pursuing players uh trying to uh, you know the aba's whole mission beyond the merger is to try to get a tv deal and um you know and maybe establish itself as the second league you know if the merger isn't going to happen or at least you know get itself in better position for the merger um but they also you know they they reinstitute a 300 million dollar antitrust suit against the nba uh also there's talk of trying to put t- put franchises in better tv markets which um you know may, may or may not be a good idea depending on whether they can compete with the nba teams there and um, also, they say they're you know they're going to go after established NBA players, which they had largely stopped doing around seventy seventy one. So, um, and, and they also talk about chasing after Bill Walton. It, none of this really works out, but it's you know kind of a signal that you know at least the, the climate is changing, if nothing else. The reigniting of that war by Storen in seventy four, I think, obviously you know nothing really comes of it, but I think it does in in some ways at least push nba owners to to again come back to the bargaining table yeah and then as you mentioned before in 75 you know the nuggets and the nets attempt to apply to the nba there that ended up being rejected you know caught up in the legal system and stuff uh they also try to bring in kentucky colonels as well but owner john white brown refuses to go along shows loyalty to the aba at least for the moment uh and that creates a lot of unease and bitterness um for the uh system the uh uh terry stembridge who was a um it was a dallas official later with the spurs he said you know over the last two seasons the aba really lost that community spirit you know the the idea that they were you know all the owners and all the players were kind of in the fight together and there was very much a sense of you know the franchises trying to help each other you know if one team had rights to a player but couldn't sign them they'd work out a deal where another team could get in you know there'd be competition so there was a a a lot of brokering of deals to find good ownership for certain cities even with you know ownerships of other teams there was much more of a you know uh, a camaraderie between the owners and and, and 
at least you know among that um that was somewhat lost there was also new ownership kind of that came late in the aba you guys who are looking to try to position themselves the best they can for a merger they feel like is coming and sometimes that puts selfish interests over interests of a league that you know quite frankly looks like it might be dying right and then february of 76 the oscar robertson lawsuit is settled the option clause is abolished uh underclassmen could be selected uh, in the draft uh officially uh, the, now the competition does happen. Um, a competition it was, is established, but only for a few seasons. Actually, uh, it was um, uh, Jeff Mullins who was a Warriors player in the head of the uh, the players union uh, at, at that point. Basically, said that he decided they would give owners compensation for four years because that's about how long it would have taken the case to the Supreme Court. They compromise on that, and it's awarded through 79-80 season, and then um, and then competition goes away, and it's more of a restricted free agency situation. Unrestricted free agency doesn't really come until 88 with Tom Chambers. And also, as a penalty for the reserve clause, the, the owners had to pay the players a certain amount of money as well. I would love the the compensation uh, thing to be in place now, just because that would that would uh, that would lead to to fantastic Twitter conversations about you know what uh, what compensation package the Warriors would have to send to OKC for Kevin Durant or you know the I, I think free agency would be a lot more colorful with uh, with compensation. Yes, yeah, it would. It would and that would be pretty. That, that would obviously pretty be, be pretty. Nice. Kevin Pelton and I were talking about that and how that would certainly make his job um, uh, much more interesting. And um, I, I, obviously, the players are better off without competition. But it, it, it is a weird um, landscape to think about because yeah, the compensation free agency really only lasted you know, fully about five years. And then the restricted free agency, that was sort of a similar to competition because it essentially led to a lot of assigning trades. You know, Moses Malone, for example, was a deal that, you know, in many ways was like competition, but was, you know, officially a sign and trade type thing. But uh, I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of breaks of the game is that compensation for, uh, for Bill Walton signing in, uh, in San Diego from Portland. So no, I, I think that that was a, that was an important part of the merger and something that I don't think talked a lot about the, the end of the reserve clause and, and this beginning of free agency and how in many ways, you know, basketball is kind of leading the way in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways in, in pro sports in America. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, uh, it really does also we'll, we'll get to it a little bit but it creates kind of a wild um off season in terms of you know how teams respond to this once the merger actually does happen and how uh like the celtics for instance kind of make some you know kind of head scratching moves not paying paul silas bringing in sydney wicks and um you know, going kind of away from the way that they had done business for a long time and kind of bringing in players that you didn't fit the previous celtic mold and you know the the ups and downs of that created up until you know larry bird came along but um one thing that i found interesting there's a um there's a really good uh, san antonio express news article uh talking about the uh, merger and uh barry robinson was a reporter there he was the only aba uh, affiliate reporter who was um in hyannis for the merger talks and this was during sort of the 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 normal um nba owners meetings and no one really there was no prior sense at least not publicly that a merger was coming obviously people knew the aba was in trouble and um you know there was certainly the idea that things were struggling but you know the the, um robinson talked about how you know he was the only aba affiliate reporter there he was asked repeatedly by the NBA reporters, what are you doing here? And I'd always answer, I'm here to cover the merch talks. And they would say, 
there are no merger talks. There's nothing on the agenda about merger talks. And he, he kind of felt like the, the big city NBA reporters always looked down on the ABA reporters. We got uh, very little respect, and it was sort of a typical behavior of the time. But I, I, I found it surprising that up until really the merger announcement itself, there may have been a leak here or two um, going on in probably some of the ABA cities, but it wasn't like well-known going in ahead of time that, okay, ABA officials are, you know, in – here at the NBA meetings, and they're at least discussing it. That was not really known you know, beforehand on a wide scale. In any case, well, I think part of that is the you know the crying wolf is that they'd talked merger now for six or seven years, and so at some point, I think people stopped believing that it would actually take place. Yeah, that's a fair point, and um, I, yeah, and obviously, you know, the secrecy would not be possible today. I don't think, but um, no, definitely not. Yeah, you're, you're dealing with a different media environment, of course. Uh, and, you know, there were lots of hurdles, uh, really a lot of obstacles that really everyone had to go through to kind of get a um, to get a settlement there. There had to be 14 of the uh, 18 NBA owners had to agree to the merger and the Knicks owner, Mike Burke, had to what had to be one of them because of the Nets um, invading their territory um, there. It was pretty soon the nba established that it would only take four teams not six the aba players wanted all the players to be part of the merger uh the st louis owners desperately wanted to stay in the league um john y brown the owner of the colonels was fine with folding the team and he made a pretty good deal that we'll talk about in a little bit but there were you know they had to get the you know larry flesher and the players union involved um and initially the uh NBA owners wanted the ABA teams to pay a $4.5 million entry fee, which they thought was absurdly high. The ABA guys threatened another lawsuit, and there was, um, you know, it, it looked like very close to the end uh, that they were probably weren't going to uh, be able to make it through. Angela Drosas, who was the uh, Spurs owner there and was a powerful figure in the late stages of the ABA, you know, basically said, you know, he, he, he thought like, you know, he, he told, um, he told Larry O'Brien, the NBA commissioner that, you know, uncle, we're, we're, you know, we just can't do this. We're going to have to, we're going to back off and figure something else out. And, um, and, and really it was sort of an, an overnight thing. And, and one of the key moments which I thought was a really interesting story. It was in the same San Antonio Express news piece that I had read before is that the Nets owner, Roy Bow and Mike Burke, the, the Knicks owner, had an evening of drinks together and they, and they were you know obviously at odds because they both uh, officially the nets were um you know rivals of the knicks although the knicks still owned the town despite their struggles at that point and the nets you know had very little imprint despite having julius serving and despite having um having won two championships in the previous three seasons but about uh, 1 a.m uh, wednesday in the bar the the two of them were laughing and joking and carrying on like long lost friends uh, Bo had his, his arm draped around Burke's shoulders and it looked like anything but bitter business rivals. And Burke, after that mind, decided to change his mind and support the merger, which is just an amazing, great, you know, 70s ownership story. Absolutely. Yeah, if it took place at the bar, that's that's quintessential 70s. Yes, absolutely. So Dave DeBuscher, he was the ABA commissioner at that point. Of course, it had been the uh, great Knicks star. He came to the ABA first as the Nets uh, GM and then moved on to become the ABA commissioner and, and was sort of, you know, did most of the direct negotiating, although, you know, um, the the ABA officials that, that were their owners, uh, Drosses, as I mentioned, Roy Bow, and also Carl Shearer, who was uh, executive for the uh, – for the Nuggets and the um, Pacers owners as well, but they were kind of a smaller part. They, they had not been in the league nearly as long, so they were kind of willing to go with whatever. But 
um, you, you know, basically Drosus went to bed saying that, you know, like he didn't think it was going to happen. He thought it was over, but, uh, you know, unbeknownst to him in the morning, the, the NBA owners had informally agreed to the merger. Uh, O'Brien was able to uh, get it through and, um, and you know they the, the last thing was that uh, Burke from the Knicks agreed to accept a, a payment of about four million from the Nets to uh, settle the deal, and they you know, agreed to a three point two million um, dollar terms for the four teams to get into the ABA, and also having to um, settle uh, the paying off the uh, Spirits and the Colonels owners, which we'll get to in a moment. But but certainly there were a lot of things that could have scuttled that merger, and the fact that it it went through was uh you know pretty amazing oh yeah absolutely so the actual merger itself it's announced uh, june 17th 1976 um and as we mentioned the nba did not call it a merger they called it an expansion uh the nba board of governors final vote was 17 to 1 in favor of absorbing the four teams uh seattle actually registered the only no vote which i kind of found funny because sam shulman was the um was a proponent initially of the ABA guy teams coming into the league. I don't know what happened six years later where he became such against it, but I found that was interesting. But um, some of the things they couldn't receive any TV money for, I believe three seasons. Um, they missed the 76 drafts, uh, which had happened a couple weeks before that. So they didn't, were unable to have the influx of talent. Um, the, um, the owners of the spirits, Daniel and Ozzy Stoner were given 2.2 million Plus four seventh of a team share of a TV contract, and this ended up being huge for them. They would earn three hundred million through that uh, of that through twenty fourteen, and then settled for a five hundred million lump sum to end the deal, which was pretty incredible. We we talk about this as being you know maybe the greatest sports deal of all time, and Stillman's really pulled the wool over their eyes. And even if the you know the TV money wasn't big in the seventies, but even in the seventies, this was you know half a million dollars a year. So this wasn't. This wasn't pittance in the '70s, and it just obviously it, it grew by leaps and bounds in the in the 2000s. And you know they're writing 20 million dollars checks a year. But even then, I you know I, I would love to be a fly on the wall to see how Danny Nazi Silna just could could uh, could manage to make this work. Um, but you know obviously they they were uh, they were dealing from a position of power because their fellow owners their fellow ABA owners knew that they might not last another season, so they were going to get nothing out of it. Um, but still, it was it was a pretty amazing deal. The other guy who got a pretty good deal out of it, not quite as good as the Silnas, but uh, John Y. Brown, who uh, sold the uh, Colonels for or, t- or took the, took three million dollars for uh, folding the Colonels, and then very soon after bought the Buffalo Braves for one point five million, and then traded the Braves uh, for the Celtics with Irv Levin. The Braves moved to San Diego, so John Y. Brown owned the Celtics for co-owned the Celtics for a while. He was eventually bought out. I can't find the exact figure he uh, received for uh, buying the Celtics, but I imagine he probably got more for the, uh, I imagine he probably got a hefty, um, a hefty profit out of uh, the whole deal as well. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure uh, John Y. Brown, you know, profited from that, from that little turn of events. Yes. So, you know, looking at, like, winners and losers when it comes to the merger, uh, obviously, as we, we talked about the Sonas and John Wood Brown, I think we're clear winners. Uh, the Nets, on the other hand, they, they and, and Roy Bow, their owner, that, that that's a little bit of a mixed, um, uh, to say the least. They uh, they had to, as we mentioned, pay the uh, Nets, uh, pay the Knicks $4.8 million in territorial fees on, on top of the $3.2 million, which they had to pay for the entry fee. So they ended up... Um, 
selling Julius Irving to the 76ers for $3 million. He wanted to renegotiate his contract as well on top of that. Um, they initially offered him to the Knicks for dropping the um, the, the 480000 annual charge, adding up to $4.8 million for 10 years, but uh, they didn't accept that. So, uh, so Dr. the Sixers got Dr. J instead, and um, and, and things were better. Uh, he also, Roy Bo, ended up having major debts uh, and had to sold the Nets and the Islanders we also own right away, like about a year afterward. The, the price is unknown for that, so I, but unlikely given the debts that he had that he was able to really profit from uh, this deal personally, although the, the future Nets owners, obviously, as the team's value increased, certainly uh, benefited. Um, the Pacers and Nuggets also a, a little bit mixed. Uh, the Pacers struggled financially after the merger. About a year later, they had to hold a telethon to sell 8,000 tickets, and if they had not been able to do that, um, they would have been sold to the highest bidder. Uh, Sam Nassie bought the team in 79 for an undisclosed price and then sold it for a reported, uh, at least was asking for $4.5 million plus assuming $6 million in debts in 1983. In fact, was close to returning the, the, the team to the league that year. So, um, And then eventually, of course, uh, famously the Simons, who still own the team, bought the team and, um, and, and did well there. Um, and Nuggets also struggled immediately after uh, financially in the late 70s and early 80s. They were sold to a Spurs part owner, Red McCombs, who um, obviously sold his interest in these Spurs to um, to, to buy the Nuggets for a report of $10 million in 1982. So, you know, those 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 prices were raising by the early 80s, certainly more than the um, ABA owners had to uh, sell the league. But with the amount, the amount of debt that they, those teams probably were getting was probably a lot. But... Uh, the Spurs owners did very well. Um, Angel Drosa said, hey, we paid Julie to get in, but he later sold his share of the Spurs for $47 million in 1988, and I think he said he got a $17 million personal profit out of that deal. So, um, you know, by way, even though the owners had to pay uh, quite a bit to get in, eventually those investments in those teams maybe didn't pay off for the initial guys, but certainly, you know, those, as we know, owning a uh, – the the values of a sports team rarely go down. Well, I think it's interesting how the those ABA four kind of went different directions. So the the Nets and Pacers sell off their star players, and the Nuggets and Spurs actually try to add more star power to their rosters. So the Spurs end up getting Artis Gilmore uh, in the in the early eighties, and the Nuggets you know essentially gutted their roster to to surround David Thompson and Dan Issel with star talent. They got. Uh, traded for George McGinnis and Charlie Scott to try to increase the box office. Because if you're not getting any money from television, the one way you can make money is to get higher attendance. And so the uh, the Nuggets were at the top or in the top two or three of attendance the last couple of years of the 70s and really pumped uh, pumped money into that to, to make that happen, where the Pacers and Nets sold off everything that wasn't nailed down to try to make payroll. The, the Nets had some benefit because... Um... You know they'd already they'd won a couple championships, so I mean, and the, the Pacers had obviously been established dynasty, so those they had had more stability in their previous um, regimes. I mean, the Spurs had you know only moved a couple of seasons before from Dallas, so they were you know a fairly new as a successful team, and the Nuggets had you know mostly. And we're, we're mostly up and down until the mid seventies, right before you know they had a really great season with Mount Calvin, right before the, the season where they got Thompson and Issel, and really were it, peaking at exactly the right time for them to be attractive to the. Um, and the Spears were were trying to field a 
serious competitive team, you know, wanting to be attractive in um, for the NBA. You know, theoretically, they were in St. Louis, which obviously a great, great television market, although it hadn't done well for the NBA previously. Um, but you, as, as you know, it has been documented in many places, they were just a disaster for the most part on the court. Marvin Barnes running amok and, uh, you know, were not a team that anyone had any interest in buying, you know, once they, um, uh, you know, once the, the time for the merger happened. Well, once you got to the merger point, too, they knew that the players were going to be dispersed. So there was no reason to, to you know, buy the buy the team if you could get the players you wanted, the, uh, you know, the Marvin Barneses and the Moses Malones that were uh, that were on the Spirits. Yeah. And the, uh, the way the dispersal draft basically worked was, you know, each ABA player was assigned a price for signing rights and the funds were used to pay off debts for from the ABA. Uh, Gilmore's artist Gilmore was picked first by the Bulls and his price has 1.1 million. Uh, Marvin Barnes was 500,000. He ended up, of course, being washing out pretty quickly in the uh, a- in the ABA. Moses Malone was $350,000, and he, of course, ended up being a great success, three-time MVP and lasting, you know, playing for 20 years. Uh, Maurice Lucas, 300,000, um, and you know he obviously uh, helped lead the Blazers to the championship the very next season. So, uh, so some great talent there. Then it, it got kind of thin after that, as far as you know, major contributors. Most of the you know the really good players, of course, were on the established teams. Um, the weaker teams did not have as good of players for the most part. Um, so, so yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to wonder, you know, if the merger hadn't happened, how we'd remember the ABA differently, because obviously most of the great players would have made it into the league and you know julius irving would still have an impact julius irving would still be remembered but i i do think the continuity of having the spurs nets pacers and nuggets be part of the nba i do think helps pr- keep that tradition alive um more than it would have otherwise oh absolutely and i think that if you ask you know fan bases in those four cities they still um have have pretty fond memories of the aba uh um, Definitely more so than than places where the league folded. Um, you still have I know I know you've had a uh, several old Indiana Pacers um, players and 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 reporters and and them come on and I think that universally talk about how beloved those early Pacers teams are and I think that that that's only possible because that they can trace lineage directly back to those teams as opposed to uh, the ABA folding. So I think the merger is incredibly important for the legacy of those four. You know, you know for those individual teams, it, just, it would be interesting to see. It would be interesting to look in the world to see how the ABA would be remembered with in in the other way although obviously I think it worked out for the best um for everyone involved um it is interesting how um they're going to do a show in the future on how the um ABA teams themselves sort of uh fared over the next few years obviously as you allude to the Spurs and the Nuggets did fairly well the uh the Pacers and the Nets uh struggled really the Nets struggled for about 25 years before they um you know before they were able to write the shift in the early 2000s and that only only briefly but um anything else regarding the merger you think would be interesting to talk about no I just think it's a fascinating uh fascinating event and definitely a turning point in pro basketball in the 70s i think that you can trace the uh trace a lot of very modern ideas about basketball back to the aba and the merger the idea of the you know high flying uh wing players kind of taking a, a bit of the shine off the plotting low post center action that the nba was famous for the you know the the emphasis on the dunk is an artistic shot the the three-point shot um the you know the exciting up and down basketball that's played. I think a lot of these uh, 
the forerunners to kind of the the styles that that we like today. I think you could trace back to the NBA or the ABA, uh, excuse me, and the and the merger. So I think that this is an incredibly important event um, in in the '70s, certainly, and in pro basketball as a whole. And you have a book about the 1970s uh, coming out soon. Want to tell our listeners all about it? Absolutely. Um, it should be out early 2017. I'm sending final proofs off in the next couple of days. Uh, it's being published by Roman and Littlefield, and the title is uh, Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. So I look at uh, the NBA in the 1970s and trace its evolution, the the great players, the great teams, the not-so-great players, and the not-so-great teams, and uh, it's, a, it's a fun ride. So I'm looking forward to seeing it in print, and it should be out, like I said, early 2017. Thanks again to Adam for being on the show, and uh, definitely check out his book when it comes out. It's going to be a great read, I'm sure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for checking us out, and hopefully you've been enjoying our Basketball Mysteries the 1970s series. You can find us on the Step Back at fansided.com, and also on iTunes and Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Just search for Over and Back or the Step Back, and you can find it. And uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening. We're back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.